Well, good morning, everyone. Um, some things have happened in the world between the time the Lord delayed this lesson on my heart uh, and this morning when I'm giving the lesson. But a couple weeks ago, the Lord laid on my heart just a thought that God is working among the nations. And I'm going to talk about some things this morning from Scripture that have absolutely nothing to do with current events from my perspective. Now, what the Lord speaks to your heart might be different from what the Lord spoke to my heart, but this was not a lesson prepared in response to recent events in the Middle East. I just want to be, be very clear about that. Uh, you know, the, the sons of the Spirit are those who are led by the Spirit. Those who are driven by the winds of doctrine and news from the world, these are not the full-grown, mature sons of God. We want to be led of the Spirit, um, you know, I don't advocate ignorance, but we don't want to be led by the headlines in things of God. So, that's a preamble. Um, by way of introduction, I just want to say that I am very fond of a dramatic turn of phrase. You know, you get a, a good dramatic quote, and that can be kind of exciting. One of my favorite quotes, uh, this uh, harks back to World War I. Uh, General Ferdinand Folk who is a French general, and he gave a report on his situation one day. He said, my center is collapsing. My right is retreating. Situation excellent. I attack. And, you know, that's just very stirring to me because you hear the first part of that, and it's like, oh, no, things are in disarray. And he says, no, 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 the situation is excellent uh, and the, the verb tense in French doesn't quite translate nicely into English. It's j'attaque. I'm probably butchering the pronunciation. But it is, I attack, I am attacking, you know, I go forward. Situation, excellent. I'm advancing, charging, attacking. Doesn't matter how things look. I attack. I'm going to open the, the word of God with John 1, 1 through 5. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness. And the darkness did not comprehend it. I love that passage. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, I ask this morning that you would help me to bring that word that you have prepared, that my thoughts, my feelings not enter into it, Father, but that this be something that you have for your people. I ask, Lord, you would bless each heart here in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to talk about two things in John 1, 1. The darkness did not comprehend it. And again, that verb in the Hebrew doesn't quite translate over into the English. The way I like to describe it, when you comprehend something, you contain it in your mind. There's something I like to say to my coworkers from time to time. I can explain this to you, but I can't understand it for you. You know, I can say the words but I can't put the knowledge inside your brain. You have to put the knowledge inside your brain. Um, 
when you comprehend something, just in the sense of knowing it, it's like you contain it. You're able to wrap your arms around it. You understand it. And very often we read that the darkness could not comprehend it. We think the darkness, it was confused by the light. It, it didn't understand the light. And that's really not the thought here. It could not contain the light. It couldn't wrap its arms around the light. Uh, some commentators have said the darkness did not overcome the light. And I love that thought. Here's why. The light shines in the darkness. The darkness did not contain it, overcome it, stop it. It's a very interesting picture, a very obvious picture. If you shine a light, a flashlight into the night, that light shines out. The darkness does not stop the light. And I want to talk about that word shines. Uh, if you look in Galatians 3.16, we'll come back to this in a moment. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say, and to seeds, as of many, but as of one. And to your seed, who is Christ. God pays very careful attention to words and letters and diacritical marks. I was reading a, a translation yesterday, and I totally forget the context, I totally forget the verse, but the translator describes the word that's there and says, but actually, if there's this little accent, it makes sense. So the word in the Masoretic text, it's like, it doesn't make any sense. But if you have this one little mark here, it does make sense in context. And so he translated as if that mark uh, were there. Um, God's word is not going to pass away. No part of the word of God is going to pass away. No conjugation of a verb is going to pass away until all things have been fulfilled. When John writes, the light shines in the darkness. It doesn't say it has shone. It doesn't say it shined. It doesn't say it was shining. It says the light shines right now, present tense. And was the darkness able to overcome it in the past? No, it was not. And so the light shines. That's one in the beginning. Let's go back to Genesis 1 and read there verses 1 through 3. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. Now, was that light that God spoke into being, was that the same as the word of God, in whom was light? No. No, that light shines. The light of the word shines. Um, but God is speaking just of a natural light. But I love the picture there. I love the parallel. God said, let there be light, and there was light. The light shines in the darkness. The darkness is not able to overcome it. And what was in the beginning with God? It was the word of God. How did God bring about that light and the rest of creation? With his word. We see there in those two verses about creation, we see God, we see the Spirit of God hovering on the face of the waters. We see the Word of God bringing things into existence. I want to talk about that word spirit for just a moment. Um, if you turn to Psalm 33, 6, 
we see that exact same Hebrew word. Uh, the spirit of God. That word can mean breath. It can mean wind. It can mean an exhalation. In Psalm 33.6, it says, By the word of the Lord, or by the word of Jehovah, the heavens were made. And all the host of them by the breath of his mouth. Try to say a word without using your breath. You know, if you look at me, at my face, and if I enunciate it very clearly, and if you kind of read lips, and I, if I say a word that's not ambiguous, if you're right here in front of me, looking at me, maybe you'll understand that. But if I want everyone to hear me, I've got to use my breath. Um, and some of you probably know that if I want everyone to hear me, I can use my breath in such a way that everyone will hear me. A couple blocks over even. God's word is filled with his breath. And it's that same word as spirit. The word is frequently translated as spirit, but the Hebrew word kind of speaks of not just the spirit metaphorically, but of the breath. Also of the wind. In 1 Kings 19.11, you know, this can be a powerful thing, not just a gentle exhalation. 1 Kings 19.11, Then he, that is God, then he said, Go out and stand on the mountain before Jehovah. And behold, Jehovah passed by, and a great and strong wind tore into the mountains and broke the rocks in pieces before Jehovah. But Jehovah was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And that word wind is that same word translated breath and translated spirit. So there's kind of some context involved there. The spirit of God, the breath of God, the wind of God, all those thoughts are tied up there in the Hebrew. The Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. If we go to Deuteronomy 32 and verse 11, I want to read that. As an eagle stirs up its nest, hovers over its young, spreading out its wings, taking them up, carrying them on its wings. Um, and I have a picture here. I asked Sister Lorraine to put a picture up here of an eagle. So there is an eagle. Uh, I don't really know exactly what kind of um, raptor this is, some kind of bird of prey, but for our purposes, this is an eagle. And there it is spreading out its wings. And it's kind of the picture there in Deuteronomy 32. An eagle stirs up its nest. And if you can picture in slow motion an eagle beating its wings, just kind of hovering over that nest, spreading out its wings, taking them up, it can pick up one of its chicks, if you've ever seen a picture of a, a bird of prey in flight having captured its prey, it, you know, I, I have in mind a picture of an eagle with a fish in its two claws. Um, they'll carry birds, other little birds, uh, rodents, whatever they want to pick up, they can carry those in its claws. Those claws are deadly weapons. We, we saw a presentation yesterday on some birds of prey. And, you know, the birds of a bone, the, the bones of the birds, the, the presenter said, were hollow but not the bones and the claws. Those claws are deadly weapons. But in this picture in Deuteronomy 32, spreading out its wings, taking them up, that is taking up its young, it can very tenderly reach down and in a time of trouble pick up those young ones, those chicks, in its claws and carry them gently to a place of safety. As an eagle stirs up its nest, hovers over its young, spreading out its wings, taking them up, carrying them on its wings. It has a picture of strength 
There's a picture of protection there. Now, if, if you look at that bird, I would not want to be beaten about the head and shoulders with those wings. Those are, those are strong. Um, it is taking its chicks to a place of safety in that verse. That is the picture we see there. That word hovering is the same word we see there in Genesis uh, 1-2. If you're familiar with the King James, the Spirit of God moved on the face of the waters. Uh, that word movement, it's, it's the hovering. And there's a sense there of taking a situation that is not good and moving it into a situation that is good. That eagle can carry its chicks to a place of safety. The Spirit of God, before God's Word came into play, God's Spirit was there. God's Spirit was there to make things ready. I think of you know, the voice of him that cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. And that thought kind of reminds me in Matthew 23, verse 37, when Jesus said, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. You know, those wings, we think so often as being... Uh, you know, the, the organs of flight. We have the organs of sight, the organs of hearing. The wings are the organs of flight. But there's also a very strong picture of protection. You know, when Ruth says to Boaz, take me under your wing. But Jerusalem was not willing. I don't know if the scripture says this, but just the sense of the words. I always picture Jesus looking at Jerusalem and, and saying that, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, with the tears streaming down his face. I don't know if he, if he wept. I don't know what his tone of voice was. But I think it would not be inconsistent with the thought there. It is deep, deep sadness. I wanted to protect you. I wanted to protect you under my wings. But you wouldn't let me. All of that... I see bound up in that picture of the Spirit of God hovering over the face of the waters. And really the thought that the Lord gave to me uh, a couple weeks ago when I was praying, God's Spirit still moves among the nations. God's Word still goes out to the nations. I read earlier Galatians 3.16. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. And he does not say, and to seeds, as of many, but as of one. And to your seed, which is Christ. So I'm going to shift gears here away from talking about things that were in the beginning. How God began. The book of Genesis is a book of beginnings. You look in the book of Genesis and throughout the book of Genesis you see God beginning to do what it is that he does. It is our introduction in many ways to how God does things. When the earth is useless and purposeless and I would say, I would extend that when any part of the earth is useless and purposeless God sends his spirit to hover 
that sense of protection, of the desire to move it to a place of safety. God sends that light, and the darkness is unable to contain that light. God continues to work in that way among the nations. Now if we go to Genesis chapter 26, we see uh, that specific passage, Genesis 26 verse 4, And I will make your descendants multiply as the stars of heaven. I will give to your descendants all these lands. And in your seed, singular in the Hebrew, singular in the book of Genesis, in your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. I think also of Eve, some of the the great sorrow that she felt when um, Abel died. And when her third son was born, she said, God has given me another seed in place of Abel. God looked forward from the very beginning. From the first time sin was discovered in the human race, God looked far forward to that seed, which is Jesus. And what I like about that passage is, in your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Not some of them, not a few of them. Not those that in majority believe, not the ones that I pick out, all the nations. You know, we see in heaven, when we see that group of overcomers, and it says, out of every kindred and tribe and tongue and nation. I don't understand that. I will just say that. How did God reach out to... um, the Olmecs in Central America who lived there, I don't know, 1,000, 1,500 years ago. They're considered a pristine civilization in that below that layer of archaeology where we find the Olmecs, we find nothing. There doesn't appear to have been a civilization that predated them. How could they possibly have known about this seed? How could they possibly have been blessed? How could they have heard the good news? I don't know. But I believe the word of God. Every nation shall be blessed. Every kindred and tribe and tongue and nation will be represented in that group of overcomers. In Psalm 46.10, there's a song I think most of us know. I know that the children used to sing this, Psalm 46.10. I'm going to sing it real quick. Be still and know that I am God. Be still and know that I am God. Be still and know that I am God. It's a very simple message, very sweet message, very personal, very individual message. Do you want to know what the rest of the verse says? Of course you do. Psalm 46.10, Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. That's epic. I don't know how you feel about that, but that is pretty epic. It is not just, oh, I can be quiet and calm. I can know that God is God and God will take care of me. That's not what the verse is about. The verse says, God will be exalted among the nations. We're going to get to a verse here in just a little bit about uh, some things that happen in eternity, 
in that place God has prepared for us. That's not what this verse is talking about. I will be exalted on the earth. God is arranging things so that he is exalted now on the earth in this time among the nations. Now, maybe not this very instant, but it is God's plan for this brief period of history that we call time, you know, from the eons past to what the scientists tell us will be eons in the future, that brief punctuation mark in the stream of God's plan, God is going to be exalted, not just in eternity, not just when the nations are healed. God will be exalted on the earth. In Zechariah 1, verse 15, God says, and we're going to get a little bit into the final part of my my message here. God said, I am exceedingly angry with the nations at ease. Exceedingly angry with the nations at ease. For I was a little angry. He's talking about his wrath against Israel and how he judged Israel with the nations. I was a little angry, and they, that is the nations at ease, they helped but with evil intent. We'll see later that you know, God speaks to the nations. God doesn't just speak to Israel and the prophets there. God speaks to the nations. Uh, you know, I think of Moses who went to Midian uh, and found a rule, the, the priest of Midian. I think of um, Abraham who sacrificed to Melchizedek who is the king of Salem, which is the king of Jerusalem, but also the king of peace. Abraham gave tithes. You know, what kind of religion did he, did he teach, this, this priest of Salem? Well, the historians would tell you he probably worshipped the Canaanite gods because he was a Canaanite. Well, Abram, who knew Jehovah, gave tithes to Melchizedek. How did God speak to Melchizedek without speaking through Abram? I don't, I don't know. But he did. God spoke to the nations and told them to judge Israel for Israel's wrongdoing. Because God was a little angry with Israel. But those nations were very eager. They wanted to go above and beyond. That's not always a good idea with God. Do what God asks. You know, Don't go above and beyond with your own ideas. With Israel, God was a little angry. But those nations that judged Israel, God became exceedingly angry. Because they helped with evil intent. Do you know what evil is? Evil is not some guy with red horns and goat hooves. Evil is not some sword that glows black like you might see in epic fantasy or in Hollywood. Evil is I will. Not Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? Not God, what do you want? But I will. That is the essence of evil. Those nations acted in self-will. And God became exceedingly angry because their will was to harm God's people Israel. And finally, kind of the end of the matter with the nations, Revelation 22, verses 1 and 2. I'm sure most of you are familiar with this, but I'll read it anyway. And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the middle of its street and on either side of the river was the tree of life, which in a picture is Jesus, which bore twelve fruits, And that 12, I believe, is a reference to Israel, the 12 tribes of Israel. Each tree yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing 
of the nations. Now, the ancient people of whatever culture were not stupid. Um, they knew that there are plants whose leaves were useful for healing. I kind of see here uh, just sort of reference to herbology, the study of herbs to do, you know, whatever. Lots of medicines that we have today were derived from plants that people figured out, oh, this helps. Uh, I think of aspirin. Aspirin sometimes is called a, a miracle drug. Well, it's made from willow bark. In willow bark, you can find salicylic acid. And aspirin is acetyl salicylic acid. Um, a lot of our modern drugs are derived from plants. Well, this tree, it's a healing herb. The leaves of that tree heal nations. Man, we could use some of those leaves right now. There's going to come a day when the nations will be healed, fully healed, when that sin will be gone. But I don't think that's, uh, that's not today. I want to talk specifically now about two of the nations. We'll start with Egypt. And let me tell you about Egypt, and the other one will be Assyria. Israel came out of Egypt, and Israel went into Assyria. I've got a map showing that region, and if you look down there in the lower left, you've got the Egyptian kingdom. This map is intended to represent kind of the, uh, the extent of the Assyrian Empire, I think what later some of us called the Babylonian Empire. Um, but the lower left, you see where Egypt is. Over on the right, probably can't read the cities, but those were, that's, um, you see the city of Babylon, which ruled over most of that territory, including Israel. Kind of the darker green, that is an extent, a larger extent of the Assyrian Empire, which we'll talk about later. But if you look at that, with Assyria kind of to the, the far east there, Egypt there in the, the southwest, Israel moved from Egypt into the land God promised them into Assyria. And they've been you know, kind of back and forth a couple of times. But the movement of Egypt was I'm sorry, the movement of Israel was out of Egypt and into Assyria. And so I wanted to focus on those. Both of those were nations that were used to judge Israel. Neither of those was a godly nation. They're both nations that God does not speak well of. So let's talk about Egypt. And we're going to try to move fast here. We first encounter Egypt in Genesis 12, when Abram goes down to Egypt to dwell because of a famine in the land. So it is a place that Abram went. Um, I don't have the scripture reference up there, but in the next generation, there's a famine in the land again. And Isaac is thinking about going to Egypt, and God says, no, don't go to Egypt. So it was a place that Abram went for refuge. wasn't a very safe place, as you know. Abram was concerned, and Abram was the prophet of God. I don't think Abram was an idiot. He was concerned they were going to kill him and take his wife. So right there, when we first encounter Egypt, it's like, this is not a great place. We see in Genesis 37, where Joseph is sold into slavery. He's sold to some Midianite traders who take him to Egypt. They took him there because they knew that in Egypt, there was a market for slaves. So we see Egypt is a place where people could be bought and sold for money. And if you know the story of Joseph... Potiphar could do pretty much whatever he wanted to to Joseph. 
My wife was a little miffed. I'll throw Joseph into prison. Egypt is not a good place from the outset. In Exodus chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, I'll read this one. So the Egyptians made the children of Israel serve with rigor, and they made their lives bitter with hard bondage in mortar, in brick, and in all manner of service in the field. All their service in which they made them serve was with rigor. So I think most of you know the stories of Joseph in Egypt, of the children of Israel in Egypt, of the deliverance and the exodus from Egypt. So I'm not going to go into a whole lot of detail here. But in Exodus chapter 12, we see the first victory over the Egyptians. Now the children of Israel had done according to the word of Moses, and they had asked from the Egyptians articles of silver, articles of gold, and clothing. And the Lord, that is Jehovah, had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, so that they granted them what they requested. Thus, they plundered the Egyptians. Take everything I have. Just please leave. It's kind of the, the sense I get from the Egyptians. Uh, you know, the Egyptians suffered under the willfulness of their Pharaoh. I am um, kind of the opinion that a people received from God the kind of leader that they need. The, the, the nature of the people is reflected in that leader. When you have a wicked leader, he didn't come out of a vacuum. He came out of that nation. A wicked leader grew up, got his ideas, formed his character in that nation. So I don't think of this as being a situation where, oh, the poor, oppressed, benighted Egyptians. They had a wicked leader because they were a wicked people. But they had suffered under Pharaoh's willfulness and those ten plagues. And they willingly took what they had and allowed themselves to be plundered so the people of Israel would leave. So what was the response of the people of Israel? I will not tell the entire story of the Exodus, but I think Numbers 14.3 tells us a lot about the state of mind of the people of Israel. Numbers 14.3, Why has the Lord brought us to this land, that is the land that God had promised them, to fall by the sword, that our wives and children should become victims? Would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? In a word, no. They had become so rebellious. They desired to return from the land that God had promised and go back to that land of bondage. They desired to return to that bondage of Egypt, to return to that wicked nation. In Second Chronicles 12, just something else that I think is interesting about, um, about Egypt. 2 Chronicles 12, 2, And it happened in the fifth year of King Rehoboam that Shishak, king of Egypt, came up against Jerusalem because, it's a very important word, because they had transgressed against Jehovah. God uses the nations in Scripture to chastise Israel. They are asked to do the will of God, and they do the will of God, as, as we saw earlier, and then some. They do so with evil intent. But God reaches out to those nations 
and asks them to do his will, and they do. Now, out of evil intent, I think uh, also of um, Balaam, who went to preach, and he said some amazing things. I mean, some of what Balaam said are some of the sweetest words you'll find in Scripture. I have not seen sin in Israel. I have not seen iniquity in Jacob. There's the shout of a king in his camp. I have received commandment to bless. God is blessed, and I cannot reverse it. Those are beautiful words of God. Balaam sought to destroy Israel. He did what God said, and then he acted in self-will. Egypt, when called on, did what God said, but acted in self-will. In 2 Chronicles 35, verses 20 and 21, the story of Josiah. After all this, when Josiah had prepared the temple, Necho, king of Egypt, came up to fight against Carchemish by the Euphrates. And Josiah went out against him. So far, so good, it would seem. But he, that is, Pharaoh Necho, sent messengers to him, saying, What have I to do with you, king of Judah? I have, come, I have not come against you this day, but against the house with which I have war. For God commanded me to make haste. Refrain from meddling with God, who is with me, lest he destroy you. Just the slightest glimpse of God's dealings with the nations. I don't really know what became of Pharaoh Necho spiritually, but for a moment, Pharaoh Necho is operating in a sphere that has nothing to do with Israel. Uh, if you saw that map earlier, you know, from Egypt to the Euphrates, you had to move through that territory. If you're in Egypt, you had to move through that territory that belonged to Israel. And Pharaoh Necho, if we can believe him, was operating under commandment from God. And if Josiah interfered with him, Pharaoh Necho warned him, God will destroy you. Did not end well for Josiah there. In Jeremiah chapter 44, we see again Israel desiring to return to Egypt. And I will take the remnant of Judah, who have set their faces to go into the land of Egypt to dwell there, and they shall be consumed and fall in the land of Egypt. God did not want his people going back to the bondage of Egypt. Egypt was a wicked place. Even when they obeyed God, they did so out of evil intent. In Hosea chapter 11, When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. If you're familiar with the story of Jesus in his birth, we see that out of Egypt God called Jesus. Israel came out of Egypt. And if you think about the story of Israel, the house of Israel was in the land God has promised and willingly went into Egypt to escape destruction. But when the time came, they were called out of Egypt. Jesus, when he was a child, his family took him into Egypt to escape destruction. When the time came, God called them out of Egypt. And I don't have this on the slide, but I will just say that in Isaiah 
and Jeremiah and Ezekiel. We could spend we could spend months on this. You see God speaking against the nation of Egypt. And one of the last references to Egypt in Revelation chapter 11, verse 8, and their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city. This is the two prophets that God sends at the end uh, to speak against uh, those, those ones who seek to destroy Israel, uh, those ones who uh, seek to take the place that God has, I think, for his people. God sends his two prophets. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt. And you know the wickedness of Sodom. I won't go into any detail there whatsoever. Egypt was a place of destruction and bondage. And this city where the prophets will lie is spiritually called Sodom and Egypt. And God identifies it as the city where our Lord was crucified. And that's what God has to say about Egypt. That's what God thinks about Egypt. Running low on time, so I'll try and hurry through Assyria. I'm going to talk about Assyria, which Assyria, by the way, in case you aren't familiar, Assyria is one nation. Syria is is another. Syria is that nation just the other side of the River Jordan. And I'm not talking just in modern times. But historically, Syria is just to the east of Israel. And then Assyria, the Assyrian Empire, which is uh, at its early extent is in red up there. Um, the Assyrian Empire is a little further away. It was the, the nation or the empire that was headquartered in Nineveh, which if you know the story of Jonah, you know about Nineveh. We first encounter the actions of Assyria in 2 Kings chapter 15, and I'm going to hurry through this. In 2 Kings 15, 19 through 20, we see that the king of Assyria comes and takes, uh, basically takes tribute to the tune of a thousand talents of silver. That's a huge amount. Um, Menahem, King Menahem of Israel, the northern kingdom, took a tax of 50 shekels of silver from every wealthy Israelite. And just by way of reference, uh, that is roughly the amount of silver that's in an old half dollar. So if you get like a Ben Franklin silver half dollar, uh, that, that's about as much silver as there is in the, the shekel, the silver shekel that's spoken of here. So when you think about this shekel of silver and how much silver is in that, that's roughly a half dollar. Now it's worth a lot more than a half dollar, but I digress. God later, in, in 1 Chronicles 5.26, it says, So God of Israel stirred up the spirit of the king of Assyria. Again, Assyria is acting at God's behest, and he comes and he takes away the Israelites into captivity, some of them. Um, in 2 Kings 15, in the days of Pekah, king of Israel, the king of Assyria came, and he, it describes the people who were taken captive. In 2 Kings 17, in the ninth year of Hosea, Hosea is not the same as Hosea. This is Hosea, who is a king of that northern kingdom. Uh, The king of Assyria took Samaria and carried Israel away to Assyria. So that empire of Assyria comes and just kind of by degrees takes Israel away, kind of bit by bit, almost as if they're being devoured alive. It's a, a pretty rough thing to have happened. Which kind of helps you understand Jonah's point of view. 
We've been talking about Jonah in my Sunday school class. And the thing that always strikes me about Jonah is God says, go and preach to Nineveh. And Jonah knows, Jonah knows the end from the beginning. He knows God so well, he knows how this is going to turn out. He knows if I go and preach, he is a merciful God. He will forgive them. And I don't want the Ninevites forgiven. I want the Ninevites destroyed. I want every man, woman, child, and beast destroyed in that empire. And so he gets on a boat and he heads as far away from Nineveh as he can. And if you read the story of Jonah, God says, go and preach against Nineveh. And then after Jonah has spent some time in the belly of a a sea creature, God says, go and preach to Nineveh. It's the mercy and the kindness of God. He sent Assyria to chasten Israel. And Assyria, Assyria went above and beyond and just destroyed Israel bit by bit. Again, just the, the picture I have in my mind is, is of the nation of Israel being torn limb from limb with delight. God sends his man Jonah. Jonah who knows that God can forgive that nation of Assyria. God in his infinite mercy can redeem them. God finds the man that can bring this word. And God will not stop until that man is in the capital of that empire and preaching the words of grace. Now you read that message, 40 days, and Nineveh will be destroyed. And there doesn't appear to be anything of grace in those words, but Nineveh is being preached to by Jonah. And Jonah knows the grace of God in a way that I don't think anyone, even David, understood. God will redeem Nineveh. And that is in Jonah's heart. And despite those words, God is going to destroy you, that comes out in the message. And the people understand And they repent. I've said this before. I will certainly say it again. The great miracle, the amazing thing that God does in the book of Jonah is not the fish. It's the redemption of Nineveh. And that all sounds very nice. And then you turn a few pages over and you read the book of Nahum. I don't know what happened. Somehow that message of grace was not transmitted to the next generation. I think also of Nebuchadnezzar and uh, his grandson, Belshazzar. Somehow that message that Nebuchadnezzar received, that message that was so tremendous, that understanding of God was so tremendous that heathen Gentile king wrote part of the scripture. You go from cover to cover. The word of God was given to his people Israel and Nebuchadnezzar. (laughs) But that graciousness somehow didn't come down to his grandson and uh, Babylon was destroyed. You read what Nahum has to say and somehow that redemption work that took place in the generation that Jonah preached to wasn't transmitted down. Nineveh was destroyed. Egypt at this time, is a symbol of such great sin that the city 
where the Son of God was murdered is compared to Egypt. I'm going to close with Isaiah chapter 19. emphasize before I read this the wickedness in scripture of the nation of Assyria there is that moment when they believed in the words of Jonah one of the greatest miracles in scripture I think perhaps the greatest miracle in the Old Testament and they turned away from it the wickedness of that people the wickedness of Egypt We encountered them early on. Pharaoh. Pharaoh didn't have a lot of choice in the matter. God was going to manifest his greatness. And he did. And Pharaoh was so obstinate that he added seven more plagues to the three that God had promised. The wickedness of Assyria. The wickedness of Egypt. And I will say, by extension, the wickedness of the nation. Given all that, let me read Isaiah chapter 19. Verse 23 and 25. In that day, there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria. And the Assyrian will come into Egypt and the Egyptian into Assyria. And the Egyptians will serve with the Assyrians in that day. Israel be one of three. Israel will be one of three with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the land, whom the Lord of hosts shall bless, saying, Blessed is Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. Our Father, His Spirit, and His Word still work in the world, To bring the nations into repentance so that he may be exalted and magnified and glorified.